0: Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan, great to have you with us. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. This is episode 224. All even numbers for this podcast, no odds here, but I'll be the odd one. The one to even me out though today is not Will Dale. It's a guy who you know from the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. He is dominating, he's award-winning, he is Stefan Bartholomew. and he's in our building. Uh, Stefano, welcome back to, well it's been a while since you've done one of these. Are Are you a little rusty?
1: Well, Aaron, it's great to do a podcast in person. Andrew Van Leeuwen and I are a long way away when we record our uh, Castrol Motorsport News Pods, so uh, yeah, fun to do this in the Sleuth headquarters.
0: This is a Q&A episode. Uh, we have questions. We have answers. Well, our fans, our listeners, our readers on socials and online have questions. Uh, we hopefully have answers, and in some cases, opinions that might also form answers. So uh, let's bowl in. Uh, Paul Patty first up, Hi Head Sleuth. Is that me or you?
1: I reckon that would be you.
0: Good, correct. Well done. You can stay. Uh, What happened to the 888 Falcon that ended up with the tyre through its windshield during the 2005 Bathurst? Was it the same car that won the race in 2006? Simple answer? Yes. Correct way. Why do you know this, Stefan?
1: Well, the uh, 888, the cars book that's uh, being compiled by V8 Sleuth at the moment that will be out next year will obviously feature this car pretty prominently. Partly because it won Bathurst, but also it had a quite a reasonably long life mm. with Triple Eight starting in 05 as Craig's season car.
0: Well, so therefore it's the first Triple Eight winner. Remember that he won at Eastern Creek to get them on the board to begin with. It's the first Triple Eight pole car from Pukekohe for Craig that year. Won the Sandown 500 with Ivan Muller. Uh, had the wheel through the window at Bathurst 05. Um, nearly won the championship in 05, second to Russell Ingall. Oh uh, six, of course, the Bathurst win is so well known. Um, second in the championship again in controversial circumstances, and and I'm pretty sure that car was wheeled out again um, the following the following year. So because uh, Winkup started the year in it, didn't he? From yeah. from my memory, so uh, it did a lot. It's a very special, not just because it won Bathurst, which is clearly what makes any car very special, but it um, it did a whole pile of other stuff. So it'll form a pretty big part of this book when uh, that comes out next year that you are heavily working on.
1: And the wheel through the windscreen wasn't the only major hit it copped either. It had that uh, big one at Simmons Plains where Jamie was driving <sighs> 06 just after That's right. Bathurst. That's right, yeah. And then later in, in life, I think its only race uh, outside of 888 was uh, with Jesus Racing as a Bathurst wildcard where it had a – had a big one at the top as well. I think it
0: had a couple of hits in 2009, so that was the, the last time it ran and it was restored later on, and it's um, now up in the Muscle Car Warehouse uh, in Sydney, having been with 888 for, for many years. So, Paul, there you go. There's a bit of uh, info on the O506 car. Indeed, they were the same and a pretty, uh, pretty storied car from from history as well.
1: It's certainly a car that shows that everything is for sale because the way that Roland (laughs) Dane talks about winning that race in 06 and the importance of Bathurst to him, the fact that he was uh, happy to sell that one I think says a lot.
0: I think it also says that he got a very big number for it. He didn't sell it for a can of Coke and $2.50. That's for sure.
1: All right. So we've got one from Chris Holborn. Hi, team. I've recently been watching some old ATCC races from 1989 and noticed that there was a number 26 Sierra entered under the Brock Racing banner. Driven by Tony Noski, what was the story of this entry and where did this car originate?
0: So I can fix up a little part of this. It was 1990, not 1989. So Tony Noski was involved in the whole Brock Mobile One Racing setup. Of course, remember that they were doing... Falcon road car tuning and Mavericks and all sorts of stuff. This is after Brock's busted up with Holden. The BMW thing's happened and he's in the Sierra program by this stage. So Alan Gow's there, nosky's there, Brock's there. It's all part of this whole whole tie-up. So this was the third Brock car in the 90 championship for three rounds. I had to look this up to remember. Simmons, Plains, Phillip Island, Winton. And, and Chris is right, Tony nosky car 26, um, Brock Racing or Brock Shop or whatever it was on the side of it, White Sierra, that was the car that Barry Sheehan had shunted the previous year. Remember, he went and had a run at Winton and put it in the fence, the 105 car. Uh, that was that car um, revived for the following year because Andrew Medeki had joined the Brock team for 1990 to drive the second car. So this was a third car that popped up for a few rounds, but it met A pretty bad demise because it became the Medecki number six car for Malala while his car was off getting rebuilt before the Enduros. And he ended up over on his lid after a little touch with his old Formula Pacific rival, John Bow, and that car was crushed, like literally crushed. Afterwards, it was declared a write off, and they, um, I've seen the photos, (laughs) they absolutely flattened it uh, like a pancake. So, um, and Chris asked, where did that car originate? Well, of course, the Brock cars. Came from Andy Rouse in the UK. They were there were two cars from 1988 that came to the Brock team for '89, and then they den car Georgie Smith and Dennis Watson. Um, they built a new chassis for Brock for uh, the debut of the Enduros '89. So there were three Sierras in the mix, and they're, therefore that's why there were three. So no, good uh, good insight, Chris. That's one that many people won't have sort of thought about over the journey. The, the forgotten Brock Sierra, I guess you would. Describe it as. Uh, Justin Olden, this is a good one. I'm really interested in this. Noons, I'd like you to ask Stefan the same question you asked Howie in your recent podcast. Should the media be reporting on the off-track scandals of drivers in the same way that footballers' lives are scrutinised, or is the potential fallout too risky for the sport? Now, I think my chat with Howie was more about not whether they should or shouldn't, but it was more a case of should we take the fact that it barely ever happens as a bad thing that – for supercars, for motorsport, that media just aren't paying enough attention or care enough to either hunt it, find it or publish it. That was kind of more my mm. discussion point on it. But what's your view on this? I'm interested.
1: Yeah, I guess you could look at that either way, that that sort of thing being publicised is either a sign of success of the sport or it's a tax on success because it's not something in general that you really gonna want out there. So, yeah, I mean – the, the sort of stories that are genuinely in the public interest, that old journalism phrase, and things that interest the public are actually two very different things. Mm. And now you see, spe- especially with the internet, like um, all these things being written and a lot of stories being generated out of social media posts, especially with the footballers is where they seem to get in a lot of trouble, um, is generated out of that sort of stuff. And the media outlets just know it'll click. But um, drivers in general are a bit more commercially savvy, I think, than your average footballer. So they don't sort of, uh, yeah, there's not that loose content getting out in the first place.
0: But that's not to say that there's not loose things happening behind the scenes. It's just that the sport is not in as illuminated light position as AFL, NRL, cricket. They're probably the top three that you would say in the Australian market. Motorsport is a niche sport. It always has, it always will, despite our our love for it and our protests that – I mean, I, I open the paper so often down at the cafe here while I'm waiting for a you know a lunch or whatever and it goes days on end with no motorsport in the Herald Sun here in Melbourne, not even Formula One, you know, and there's always something going on in Formula One. So that's the level that we're at. It's been that way for a long time and I don't see the marker moving. Occasionally there's a – I mean, it's got to happen with – I mean, we saw Craig Lowndes in the paper last year for some stuff that happened away from the track, but it's got to take someone – it's a massive, massive name for it to even get to the broader media. Uh, there's plenty of other things. I've seen it. You've seen it. We've heard all sorts of stuff around the scenes over the years of things that if they were football, they're on the, They're in the paper. So someone's reporting that somewhere, but in our world it, it's not. And, and And I get your point too. In a way, that's a good thing because when you are a niche sport – the last thing you need is bad press. You, but is any press good press to help grow your sport and grow the awareness and grow the care factor? Uh, it depends if you're the person being splashed on the paper, of course, but I think it's one of those scenarios that I don't see it changing anytime soon.
1: Yeah, and this is where specialist media is very different from the mainstream as well. I think in, in all cases that um, like if there's a genuine – Issue where someone's been charged or something like that. It's mm. it's the duty of all media not to walk past that sort of behaviour and uh, sort of cover that up. But when it's just sensationalist celebrity voyeurism for the sake of uh, sake of stories, then uh, that's yeah, that's certainly not a uh, end of the pool that I'd want to be swimming in
0: mm. at any point. Mm. Mitch Strysdale, his question is: When's the last time a team owner or team principal was a Bathurst co-driver? He said, Wink up this year. As Todd and Rick Kelly, whenever co-drivers, it wasn't them, but perhaps it's Larry Perkins, any ideas? Well, last year, this year, there's team principals
1: driving. Yeah, it's in Blanchard. Um, this, believe it or not, was the only question we did any pre-brief on. <laughs> Just a uh, 30-second chat in the cafe to make sure that I didn't misunderstand the question. But, yeah, Tim Blanchard's uh, the current example of that and uh, Jonathan Webb was most recently in the race last year and won it in 2016 as a owner and co-driver. So, uh, yeah, a couple of pretty recent examples right there.
0: Yeah, don't have to look very, very far at all. Matthew Davis, any chance of a book on HDT race cars? By the way, really enjoyed reading my copy of the new edition of the HRT Cars book, which is good because that makes you and I feel very good because we put that together, which is available now superstore.v8sleuth.com.au. I nearly tripped over saying that because of all those S's in there, but perfect idea for Father's Day. We've got heaps of good stuff in the store at the moment. We've got some more stuff coming, books, prints, DVDs, model cars. There's plenty of good stuff there. Um, Join our mailing list too, our newsletter list, because we will have a Father's Day sale in the lead-up to keep you abreast of what's coming or what's available, and we'll do some good deals. So get on our newsletter list. A book on HDT race cars sounds really interesting. But you've got to go back so far that there's some grey areas on some of the cars that we could never solve, that you could never – everyone's got their story about some of those Tiranas in the 70s and which one was that, which one was reshelled. Oh, yeah, there was one that was made up of two cut cars put together and uh, you'd probably have so many that you couldn't really definitively do. Um, by the way – The Big Banger is not a part of that. I'm very clear on which one is which Mm -hmm. of those. But a a HDT um, celebratory illustrated history from, when did it start, what, 69 to the HDT brand, 87 Brock, I reckon I'd be up for that.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a book in it. But as you say, in terms of the individual cars, the further back you go, the sort of murkier it gets. And, And nowadays with those things being worth so much money, There's uh, there's a lot at stake on those ones.
0: Mm, Yep, for sure. Now this is one from an international listener, Stefano. We are worldwide on the V8 Truth podcast. Um, Now Xavier Moreau, and I'm sorry, Xavier, if you're Javier, Javier, Xavier, Xavier. I think I've tried. I've got it from every angle. He's in Montreal, in Canada. Loves the pod. and he's a Supercars follower and fan, he's been trying to understand the twin springs that were banned a few years ago in Supercars and he can't find any pictures or video to explain and are we a good place to perhaps ask the question? Well, we're a good place to ask the question. Stefano, can you give an answer?
1: Yeah, well, neither of us are engineers, so you've (laughs) got to keep that in mind. But the very, very basics of it is you've got two linear springs stacked on each other with a little mechanical slider so it allows you to have two spring rates if it's a, if it's a twin spring. So you, you ideally want a stiff, if you, if you put it in the rear of the car, which everyone was doing not too many years ago, some were in front as well, but um, it can be stiff on entry um, for stability and then soft on the exit for traction. So it just, it just is a different rate depending on where the travel is. That's, that's mm. the nutshell of it. And
0: when was that ban? 19
1: they took that Yeah, out? yeah, I think so.
0: Start of 19. So when the Mustang arrived, same time that'll happen. Yeah,
1: and so with all of that, it, it sort of adds cost because people end up with more of these things built up with all these different combinations and mm. you need people to specifically look after your twin springs. But as with most things, like they didn't end up putting off staff and saving cash. When they drop this, they just deploy. If you've got the money there, if you've got the resource, you just go and spend it on something else.
0: Mm. They always find a way, these supercar teams, to spend money on all sorts of things, no matter what they do in the rules to to try to curb it. Shane Jenkins, how many teams in the history of the Australian Touring Car Championship and Supercars Championship have completed a three-peat of championship wins but not with the same driver. Now the, illust- the illustrator point he makes: Stone Brothers with Marcus Ambrose, he won two in a row, and then Russell Ingall won uh, the-, the next year in two thousand and five. A great work with the podcast guys, loving it. So when you say stuff like that, you're a, you're an absolute guaranteed sir to get your question answered, pretty much. Uh, there's been a couple of these though over the journey. Stones, I think, are the only Ford team though to do it. But clearly HRT would have done it in their glory period, surely.
1: Yeah, with, uh, with Craig Lowndes and Mark Scaife, and you can cut that into 98, 99
0: and 2000 or 99, 2000 and 2001. That's right. You get double. Is that twice? Did that, so therefore they did it twice, three in a row. I reckon that counts. Yeah. <laughs> and Gibsons, they're the other one with the Nissans, with Scaife or Richards first for two years, ninety ninety one 91 and Scaife in 92. So, yeah, it's a pretty rare thing actually that – this hasn't happened heaps of times. And for all those wins that Triple Eight were having in championships, they're always wing cup. And obviously Van Gisbergen mm. won, um, won along the way in 16 and then again last year but you know, not connected to any of the Jamie uh, wins to try to get them to head up that way.
1: The Gibson one was split nicely because in 91 when Richo won the title, didn't Mark end up getting more points but they had to drop around?
0: Oh, I can't remember. It's the worst. If you ever hear anybody who says we've got this great scoring system, you're going to drop your worst round. Tell them to piss off. Seriously, it makes the history of the sport. It makes the way that you story tell it. It makes everything just too hard. Just if you've got to really get your abacus out. And figure this all out. It's not a good system. Not a good system. Uh, Rod Binding. He doesn't have a question, Stefan, but he just wanted to say something. This was in capital letters on social. Bring back the Sandown 500. That's all. I'm cool with that. You good with this?
1: Well, they they keep teasing us with things like uh, co <sighs> co driver practice. So they're going to have all the co drivers at Sandown this year. But then Don't after start one me. session on Friday, sorry boys. <sighs> So it's, it's like we're going to – if I seriously – if I see
0: anyone run a retro livery at Sandown, I'll scream. <laughs> but this has got to happen. And I know, look, there's bigger stuff going on in the world of supercars at the moment, but major Metro event, lead up to Bathurst, play off our history, fans want it. I've talked to a couple of team owners. They want it. Come on, make it happen. You're going to have – so we're going to have a Sandown event this year with the co-drivers at it, add an extra little bit of running time on – Make it a 500 next year and let's get it going. And I don't want to hear the excuse about football finals because it's absolute crap. Absolute crap.
1: You're probably not going to want to hear about the E-Series Sandown 500 either then.
0: Oh, I read that too and that really pissed me as well. So we can have a, a made-up 500 in virtual land but we can't in real life. But we can have co-drivers there and we, come on. Listeners, come with me on this. Bring back the Sandown 500. Make it trend, hashtag it. Post to us, send messages to supercars. We're going to make this happen. We will make this happen. Steph's looking at me like, oh my God, what have you done? What have you done? But it makes sense. Bring it back. Fans want it. I want it. Let's do it. Peter Alexander. Uh, Peter's question, with the new Gen 3 cars being designed to have the front and rear clips removed in the event of a shunt, would each chassis still be thought of as being the same, even if it went through several front and rear clip replacements in the lifetime? Now, this is the good old Grandpa Zach's question, isn't it, really, Steph?
1: Yeah, it is. But um, the short answer is is yes. It's the same chassis because mm. like plenty of the current ones have gone back to the firewall or mm. had the birdcage out and replaced, yeah. and it's still that main frame is what the what the chassis is.
0: And, and the ID of it stays the same, whatever the number was. You could cut all sorts of other bars out, but as long as it's that central um, central area, that's the main part of the chassis, and you can cut and change all sorts of bars and bits and it's at its core it's grandpa's axe you can change the handle so many times and it's still the axe so they're, they're, therefore there is a certain line when you go well that's not all the original metalwork that that car ran three years ago but for id purposes it's the same car
1: yeah so what they've done with gen 3 is just made it easier to replace those those bits
0: are we going to see gen 3
1: well, there's, there's two of them. Let's just two guys uh, to have a race, doesn't well,
0: it? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit hard to fit 23 other guys into them though at the same time. Uh, Jared Minogue, who's a guest you'd like to get the most, I presume he means on the podcast, but haven't been able to get? There's a few. I've asked if there's a few people who've said no, not because they don't like us, not because they don't um, appreciate what we do, but some people who just are not there with, They've left motorsport and they've just moved on with their life. Um, Rick Kelly is one and I've asked Rick a couple of times and I'm not going to annoy him about it. He knows that there's a standing invite to come on the show and have a chat, but he's he's just doing other things in his world and in his life and totally respect that and support that. So, you know, one day down the track maybe I can convince him to have a chat. Um, yeah, there's been a few other drivers and I, I won't, you know, a few of them that just ummed and hard about it but just thought, nah, just in another part of their life now and, you know, if they ever have a change of heart, then they know where to find us. But um, there's probably a few um, wish list guests, though, that we'd love to have on the podcast. Um, Jason Plato. I want to get mm-hmm. Jason Plato on the podcast. He's a right lad. He's a right lad.
1: Doesn't hold back. His book was pretty entertaining.
0: Well, I'm I'm really interested to ask him about some sections of his book from his uh, Vauxhall British Car days, mm-hmm. that's for sure. So, And, and I think the... The, the the biggest of big that I could ever aim to get is Dale Jr. You agree?
1: hmm Be pretty big. Yeah, and someone who's driven a supercar.
0: Has too and uh, knows about podcasting very much so. He's uh, kind
1: of a big deal. But in, before uh, you turn over that page, mm-hmm. the one that uh, everyone asks about, the most requested, hasn't come up in this conversation yet. But you did get very close with one David Thexton.
0: Oh, okay. I think I've talked about this before, but I'm happy to talk about it again. We have this strange group of fans out there who are desperate for David Thexton to be on this podcast. So I went, and made the time, connected with him, teed up a time for a Zoom chat, and he didn't turn up on it. And he didn't reply to any of my follow-up messages. So I'm not sure what else I can do. I tried. I made, I put it all together, and it didn't come together. So... What can you do?
1: Just adds to the legend, I reckon. It adds to the Ah,
0: <laughs> oh, uh, Yes, right. Uh, Liam Briggs. Liam reckons we need a podcast on performance enhancement companies that ran side-by-side with touring car teams. HDT, HSV, FPV, Tickford, Wayne Gardner Racing and their road Commodores. I don't reckon there's a podcast series in it, but I reckon there's some episodes to fit within the sleuth world on this sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting adjunct to a few different teams and obviously your HDT and and the HSV connectivity into HRT was like the ultimate mm. examples really. Um, but now we see on a smaller scale your, your Tickfords and the like mm. sort of doing that stuff. But I find it interesting that 888 have never played in that space.
0: Yeah, I'm not – well, I get it though because they've always said they're an engineering company so how do you make a buck out of – because quite often a lot of these businesses, particularly now in the more modern era, they're not cash cows. I mean, HDT Special Vehicles, Holden Special Vehicles, oh, yeah, big ticket business. Tickford FPV, solid business but never to the the, the degree of the, the red side of the feds. The WGR-inspired – what were they? Enhanced Commodores, I guess you'd say – They ran into headaches with HSV, and they're a pretty small thing. I think there was even an Alan Jones Racing run of Falcons there in the EF type era of road cars out there. So there's been a bit of this stuff going on over the years, Um, but they've always been short-run things, and they've never really gone on to, you know. I think a lot of people have that thought that, oh, wow, you released this. This will be massive bigger than Ben-Hur. There's a lot to it. And it's not as simple as you as you might think. So, yeah, uh, but there's some, there's some content there to be had for sure.
1: And it's a crowded marketplace, massively. Like neither of us are really road car aficionados, but um, mm. it's it's a crowded market with uh, not uh, sort of big margins in it for these companies like Tickford. So mm. I think mm. when you look at something like Triple Eight they can come out with their latest iteration of front suspension for race cars and say, oh, all right, customers, that's 40 grand, but it'll make you go a 10th faster where you can't kind of say that to road car customers. (laughs) They're like, oh, but this one's only like 500 bucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, Uh, no, we'll take that on board, Liam. There there might be something in that for us to to explore in in the future. Darren Burke. This is scary. V8 superstars on DVD question mark. Great to watch and entertaining. Stefan, please discuss.
1: So what year did this run? Because it finished up like mid-2000s there?
0: I think it finished, if it wasn't before the end of the Channel 10 era of supercars, it was not long yeah. before it. So uh, I think it was still going in 05. So I, I presume it went till 06, the end of the, the deal. But that probably started in about 2001, maybe 02, somewhere around there. Um, I used to do about four, maybe five a year with Channel 10. And they'd go and make big events of them at the casino in Perth and Crown in Melbourne and all sorts of locations where they had huge crowds for the recordings of these things. And if you don't know what V8 Superstars was, it was a panel show with oh, six to eight V8 supercar drivers anchored each side of the fence by Mark Scaife and Russell Ingall generally. Uh, Billy Woods hosted it, I think. Lee Diffie did for a time as well too. And basically it just turned into an all-in argument. Everyone was yelling at everyone and no one really was ever heard and um, but they pressed on with them. They did them for quite a few years. They'd be Channel 10 owned. They wouldn't be V8 supercars owned from a rights perspective. I don't even know if they exist in the vault at Channel 10 and I don't think they'd probably make exciting DVD viewing. And, And look, the reality is where DVDs are going and The world's, you know, going streaming. It's going to get harder and harder and harder for our partners at Chevron Marketing Services, for example, to keep releasing DVDs when the market keeps shrinking and there's less and less of the major department stores actually having them on their shelves. So I think the question is more a case of could, you know, supercars. Then you've got an issue, Channel 10 are not in the world now. They were for a, a time there recently, but they're not now so I think that might be limited to whatever anyone might have recorded off the TV and have to watch at home but
1: uh, do, do you remember those? Did you remember watching some of that over the journey? Yeah, for sure and I think um, David Bravham, like when he was at FPR at the end of '05, and uh, he said on the show like this is V8 super egos I think is what <laughs> he branded it as which was maybe the final show and it summed it up quite well but do, do you think it would work now? as a concept.
0: This is really interesting because there's so many things where we would have so many of our listeners and our fans and our followers of uh, motorsport fans who go, why don't they bring back this? Why don't they do that again? Why don't they? I think things are good. F- things uh, things work in their time and in their era. And the rose-coloured glasses are amazing things. Would this work now? I think it would be cringe TV in 2022. Um and and the reality is that... It was
1: cringe TV then. Yeah, it's yeah, not-
0: well, it's not going to change. So I think that, and it's clear, Fox are just covering the races now. There's no linking content in terms of programming like they used to have that inside supercars, which kind of was, you know, it was panel and it was chat. and, But as Jess Yates spoke on this very podcast about last year, I think it was, that I sort of asked her, well, why don't we have those lily pad programs that fill the gaps between. And and I've got no doubt Fox, are, you know, clearly it's budget-related, but she said, look, the other fact is that things like your podcast, other podcasts, other websites, other content is sort of doing that and filling those gaps in between. But I would have thought when you're a rights holder for the three major forms of the sport, Formula One, MotoGP and supercars, that having some form of programming that you create can can be worthwhile, but uh, yeah, well, it's just something. I think that the the, the bit that you got to remember is it was the event element of them that backed it up. It wasn't just six or eight drivers in a studio. It was at a live event with four, five, six, seven, eight hundred people in the room to create the atmosphere, to create the cash. So you need to make it an event that you got a television show out of, rather than just making a television show. You need to bring that part of it in and. Is there the audience for that these days to do the event, to stump up the money to go along to a night with a dinner and a, you know, it's a dinner and show really. Um, Look, maybe, maybe now that we're out of the other side of, well we're not out of COVID are we, but from being stuck in home or not able to travel, it would need an event element for it to work though. I reckon. But who would you make your your six panellists or your two captains and your your other people? That there's not the personalities in the yeah. field today to support it like there was then.
1: Yeah, this was the point that I was going to make. Like, um, you know, we mentioned the ego thing before, but they were big personalities and hmm. there was genuine and dislike they, between yes. Russell Engel and Mark Scape yep. And, and they know, actually said stuff. There. Yeah. 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 So they definitely weren't afraid to to say things like that, and it's just not the same now. And that's not all like um, being gagged by the teams and sponsors or anything. There's just not that same level of niggle going on. Mm. I don't think. No. no. Um, so the way like it's it sort of narrows the appeal even more. But for a hardcore audience, I think the way to work better would actually be the team bosses. Yeah, totally. and, and we've seen in say like Netflix F1 Drive to Survive, like the the big egos of those team principles are really really played on and a big part of the show. Uh, And I think, um, yeah, in terms of uh, the overall product, it would be probably better if it went that way rather than drivers.
0: Mm. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, Peter Burns, actually this links to just what you said. How much power do supercars have in stopping drivers and teams running in other categories? Well, I think recent times might show that, well, a bit.
1: Just fact, fact. It's fact. Yeah, it's it's hard to measure political power on a dyno, mm.
0: but um, <laughs> how many if, Newton if you meters? Could, I reckon
1: it would spin up a pretty good number. Uh, yeah, the the uh, the rap sheet on this is pretty long, isn't it? With mm. uh, things that have uh, occurred due to political influence, whether it was the twelve hour, which supercars ended up buying after all that. Um, yeah, so this is just the latest saga, but. Um, uh, a massive one with Shane Van Gisbergen not mm. being able to run in Trans Am considering the ARG ownership of that category and part of supercars. Mm.
0: Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Too many on Twitter. I had to say... Plenty of O's there because there are so many O's in uh, in the user handle. Would you guys consider doing a livery book, fo- focusing less on the history of each chassis, instead the different variations of teams' liveries throughout the years, from all the different coloured Vodafone cars to the non to the more obscure ones like the non-alcoholic Jack Daniel's cars, and so on and so forth. And it could be a great picture book because there's been a lot of livery tweaks and changes and tune-ups over the years, and one-offs and special causes and. Um, celebratory ones for milestones, there's probably been quite a bit there but I'm, I'm not quite sure what the – is that a strong enough theme? I mean, we've got the content, we've got lots of photos, There's it's lots of interesting stuff but is
1: that a book? Could we do a book there? Well, I think um – this is one of the things that people really like about the chassis books that um, if you look at, you know, the one we're going to do with Triple Eight, or, or the ones that have already been done with HRT and, and so on, that um, it, it doubles as that, charting the liveries and a lot of effort goes into to selecting all the photos and um, making sure that some of these one-offs or most of them are, uh, are included as well. So that's really a box that we try to tick mm. as much as we can with the car books
0: i tell you somewhere where there is a lot of liveries, the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama. They're great friends of ours. They're open six days a week. They're not open on Tuesdays. This message is getting through because I'm seeing people on socials uh, saying not open on Tuesdays. So this is definitely getting through. Of course, they've got an amazing array of race cars, motorcycles, speedway cars, memorabilia. Uh, wrecked cars as well as complete cars, um, all eras, all sorts of cars. Check it out. It's, of course, at Mount Panorama, the National Motor Racing Museum. We can't wait to get back up there for the Repco Bathurst 1000 in October. And I'm hearing that there's some special plans, special plans for some special cars to be in that museum for Great Race Week. So we'll keep you in the loop of, uh, of what's going to be going on um, in October, which is good, great. <laughs> Not far away. It's scary how close that the great race is. We haven't had to wait as long this year because remember, we were there in December. So we sort of had two months less to wait for car racing's Christmas.
1: Driving uh, around the city of Bathurst uh, on 1000 weekend with Christmas lights uh, <laughs> out the front of lots of houses
0: was very strange. Yes, yes, it was. It was. Craig Kondo, this is an interesting one. Where is the final champ car race winner from Long Beach in 2008 driven by Will Power? Funnily enough, I do know this. It does live in a private collection in the US. Um, I'm pretty sure it's in a workshop in Indianapolis with a former Champ Car uh, technical manager who is uh, looking after it for its private collector owner. But that's those Panos DPO one chassis that they put in for that last year of Champ Car in 07 and then the one-off race at Long Beach when the reunification happened. I think when you – and Power has talked about these openly and lots of the drivers of the period that – those cars were really good, really cool. They were a real waste in the end.
1: Yeah, I think they probably would have appreciated them even more once they got into those uh, IRL or, or IndyCar, whatever it was mm. called. Then cars on road courses—they weren't really designed for that. So mm. the things that Power jumped into later in that year were nowhere near as nice as that panels. I wouldn't have thought.
0: Remember, they did standing starts when they got those panels. Yes. in a Champ Car, uh, they went to they went to some different places too. Those I think Assen hosted a race in. Mm-hmm. 07, but, yeah, that Long Beach 08 race, although well, it was painted up as Team Australia, that was a KV racing car, the Kevin Kalkoven, Jimmy Vassar team, um, and that was the farewell that the same weekend the IRL was racing in Japan at Motegi that Danica Patrick won her only IndyCar race at, although the drivers at Long Beach earned points for the IndyCar series. This was all part of that whole bringing it all back together and some of the compromises that had to be made to reunify um, a champ car back into to Indy car or IndyCar car and a champ car or whichever side of the fence that you are on to um, to wheel it in. David Roberts now. David's a regular question asker, and I must admit that there's a, some of his questions along the way that we haven't been able to, to get to. But I wanted to make sure we got to this one because you were here for this Q and A. David asks: Is it time for Motorsport Australia and supercars to join the rest of the civilized world uh, and introduce minimum sector times under safety car conditions?
1: Absolutely. Do- the answer to this is yes, it's it's unbelievable that in the modern world we don't have this. And there there was a system developed and trialled by supercars a couple of years ago and I'm not sure why it didn't come in. I don't know. But whenever the safety cars called and it's, it's no secret that everyone just blazes back to the pits. Mm. Um, it's the combination of having the rules where you keep pit lane open, which I think is... Overall, is a good idea for other reasons, but yeah, you need this delta time like they use so successfully elsewhere, including mm. in F one. Um, there's not too many controversies over that
0: for the world in which we live of ohS and high high vis vests and risk mitigation. I can't believe we're still in 2022 and we haven't got some form of a a system or a a delta time or a system in the cars or anything like that to stop them from blazing around. I I just have the – there's one thing that sticks in my memory, and I think it was about 2015 when Tim Blanchard was driving for Lucas D'Umbrell, and he crashed at the top of the mountain just past Metal grate at the wall there, which, you know, plenty of people have crashed there over the years. And the angle that the car was sitting on with cars just – it was at a critical part of the race when people were trying – you know, pitting was an important thing. People were hammering past that accident zone, if something happens bad in that situation, how do you explain to a coroner or to a court of law that you didn't have a system in place to mitigate that risk or to at least remo- reduce it or remove it when you could have? I'm Like you, I'm a bit staggered that there's been systems trial, there's been discussions had and we're still not there. Like it's they've done such a great job in safety in so many areas of this sport over the journey. I'm not just saying motorsport Australian supercars, I'm saying motorsport as a whole. But why why haven't we got that sorted? I don't understand.
1: Yeah, and it can affect the response time of when marshals can actually get onto the circuit as well If mm. they, if the race hasn't been neutralised immediately. Mm. So I would very much like to see them introduce that but not use that for a virtual safety car. Because whenever there is a reason for a safety car, there's also a good entertainment value in having the safety car come out. There's nothing more frustrating than in F1 when a car is stopped on the side of the track and they put it virtual and it doesn't end up being a full safety car.
0: Oh, if you're going to do it, do it properly because it then actually adds an element. It keeps, it's keeps it got the safety element at its core but it brings the entertainment value into it as well, which I totally agree with. Totally agree with. Sky Podmore. When will the next NASCAR Oscar DVD be available to buy? I reckon we've got a really growing, bubbling group of NASCAR Oscar Thunderdome fans who are lapping up this stuff. Um, the good news is it's it's volume two's out later this year, November. Um, it's got the 1990 Moomba Cup with NASCAR Oscar and HQs on it and the final rounds of Oscar NASCAR from the 91-92 uh, Australian Super Speedway Championship at Thunderdome. So – it's going to be some cool stuff there, and I reckon that there's something we have to do in Thunderdome Land. We did a podcast, Will and I, some time ago, and it went crazy. We, whenever we do or do the odd story on the website or podcast related things, there's a massive NASCAR Oscar audience out there who love this form of, of racing. We've got to do something, surely, don't we?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so looking at this, was that sort of 91, 92, would you say that was pretty much peak Australian NASCAR? It's interesting
0: to know when you would describe the peak, but it's, I mean, Oscar fields really strong, NASCAR fields 20, low 20s. Yeah, you'd have to say, I mean, that was when it was still televised by Channel 7. Um, In many occasions it was late night or it was, you know, that afternoon or delayed, but yeah, probably, just about I mean I'm interested to hear what competitors might say that they, they might feel it was a little bit later on or even in the early days when there was more Americans coming to those big international Christmas races but I reckon you could mount a pretty good argument to say that that 90 to 92 3 sort of period uh, is probably its just about its high point when you look at all the metrics for sure yeah.
1: so you mentioned NASCAR Oscar HQ have you seen any of, like, the trucks or the Formula Bs? Didn't they run those as well? Yeah, and them?
0: I think they also ran Thunder Sports, sports sedans there with, a like, a chicane into the infield. Yeah, but, right. yeah, I've seen a little bit here and there, but not in the tape archives that I've yeah. been digging through for these ones. But, yeah, there's a little bit of that stuff around the place. So uh, we might have to wear a little bit of that over the journey because I think a lot of people wouldn't believe that that actually happened. It was a thing, super trucks around the Thunderdome. Holy shit. Nuts.
1: Some momentum going on there.
0: Momentum into the wall, I reckon. Jeez. Uh, Quick reminder too for our friends at themotorsporttrader.com.au. Head to their website, check it out. They're keeping motorsport memories alive. Luke and his team are all over it. They've got all sorts of memorabilia, race suits, car parts. Jump on their website, have a bit of a look, check it out, themotorsporttrader.com.au. Liam Baker. Liam Baker. Mm. Now, this is off the back of the news of Pukekohe in New Zealand shutting up shop to motorsport. What's your top biggest shunt crash at that circuit? There's a few to pick from.
1: There are, like, wow, what a wild joint and so sad to see it, see it going. Uh, it's a tricky question because I, there has been some unfortunate outcomes to incidents of Pukekohe over the years. But uh, if you just look at uh, V8 racing in the recent past... There's actually one on YouTube from the NZ V8 series oh, from it. about 08. Right. With uh, 12 cars going in at turn one off their rolling start and a couple end up over the Armco. Uh, oh, I've the never com- seen The commentator's this. yelling, holy snap and ring spanner, <laughs> uh, which is a pretty good line. <laughs> Uh, so Beto was involved in that one. And yeah. I reckon it beats uh, the one he had with with PD that uh, everyone talks about was that 05. 05.
0: Yeah. Pookie in supercars, yeah. The one that springs into my mind is from a supercar round but not V8 supercar car. And I'm I'm I i am i did not get a chance to sit down and look this up before we before we recorded this but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it was 2004. Now there was a year where uh, there were, the race format at the time, a bit like now, one race Saturday, two races Sunday. But there was a Porsche uh, GT3 Cup uh, that wasn't – they didn't run Carrera Cup over there. I think it was just a licensing issue, but it was the GT3 Cup, Carrera Cup cars. One of these Porsches went over on the main straight and went into the catch fencing well above the, the Armco and got stuck. Like the fence caught it. Like thankfully it didn't go over into the crowd. Um and, and I'm pretty sure that no one no, no one was seriously injured anyway. It was it was one of those heart and mouth, holy hell, this is massive. Oof, but it caused so much damage to the fence. I'm pretty sure that was why the time delay meant that they couldn't run the supercar race that day and they decided to then move it to the next day and have three races on the Sunday. I'm, look, I, I might be slightly wrong with my memory of that, but just the crash itself was, it was a Kiwi driver and I can't remember who it was, but it went up into this fence and I remember seeing it standing not far from it thinking, holy hell, that was that was wild. But, I mean, John Bauer, that big one when the throttle jammed open on his BJR BOC Falcon and ploughed in the fence and broke the leg of Scotty Wensley, our friend, the photographer who's been around motorsport for, for so many years. Um, Paul Morris going over on his lid. Was that the same year when he and Brad Jones got yeah. together at the last corner and he ended up bouncing off the guardrail and going, up and over, and uh, yeah, there's there's been some been some car wallopers there over yeah. the years for sure. And
1: both of those were the final year it was at Pukakoi before Oof. it went to Hamilton. Mm. So mm. in those days, those Armco barriers used to sort of act like ramps for that. And yeah. when they came back in thirteen, a lot of that was was concrete,
0: which was the concrete from the Hamilton Street track that had been installed out at out uh, at Pukki So yeah, wow, it's so sad. I haven't been to Pukki for some years though now. Um, I can't remember the last year I would have gone there. I think it was 2014 from memory. And uh, proper racetrack, proper crowd, proper history. Uh, you know, it's a. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere and it's not that big of a facility. But I, I was lucky enough to do some on-track commentary there in my supercar era. And I think it was that 07 year. It was a, it was a crowded house, pretty big. And holy heck, like I remember calling. There was a change for the lead. And that grandstand went bonkers. Like you reckon, Aussies are nuts about V8 supercars and supercars. Kiwis go, and it wasn't even Murph taking the lead or a Kiwi driver. It was, I think it was Tanner and Winterbottom fighting it out at that stage. But the, I just, I just remember the, the crowd went absolutely bananas. But when you're in that position too, where you can call something and the way you deliver it or pump it up or Sort of incite the Holden fans to get excited or the Ford fans or whoever it is, and they respond in voice was really something powerful. So I'll never forget that from, from Pookie. And, and I think Larco still claims a win there, by the way. Remember that he won a race there for about eight minutes?
1: And then it, it had been red flags and it went back? Yeah, it was one of those like ones in that. 0-1? Was that the yeah, first yeah. actual. Yeah, I
0: think it rained BA and races? yeah, it all turned to mark And somehow he was last man standing or they'd miscounted it or they'd stuffed it up somehow. And everyone knew that he hadn't won but they flagged him and declared him as the winner and then a short time later, of course, the man who had the mortgage on Pookie Cape at the time, Greg Murphy, the landlord, uh, turned up to collect the rent and take the win.
1: But you're right about it not just being an amazing racetrack but the the atmosphere and the way it's supported as well. Mm. Like I could only imagine what it would have been like in those peak Murph days in the early 2000s but probably the best memory I've got of being there was 2018, I reckon there was five, all five Kiwis made the shootout Mm. and just like Richie Stanaway coming onto the front straight to start his lap, which um, he probably didn't have a lot of quality laps so far in his career that have had the focus of that, but just, yeah, the Mm. the fan reaction to that, the passion for it, just incredible.
0: Yeah, amazing. And Kiwi motorsport's going to be all the poorer for... For Pookie going, and, and I mean, just the history, not just the supercar history, but wind further back to the, the Tasman series era and all the Formula One stars of the day running there. And the, you know, we're, we're working on the Jim Richards book at the moment, that B&H six hour proddy race that they ran there, and, you know, the the, the link track. And the, uh, yeah, this, you could go on and on about it for forever. So we're, we're sorry and sad to see Pookie go, and hopefully, supercars. Um, La- last year being this year in September, can send it out in style. And I know that they're already plotting and planning some cool things to be able to to pay respect because, of course, it will forever remain the first um, international venue that the championship visited. Um, 2001, you know, before China, before Bahrain, before Abu Dhabi, before the Circuit of the Americas, before any of that, there was Pukit Cohen. Troy Summerfield, this is scary. Is Randy Corners going to be the poster boy for hashtag bring back Sandown 500?
1: I'll let you deal with this one because he's your mate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he's Nathan Pretty's mate. He's not my mate. Uh, we might have to see if he's available um, and if our budget can cover his seriously high contractual demands because I'm guessing they're going to be pretty through the roof.
1: And the legal costs and all that sort yeah
0: of thing. yeah I need to get the lawyers on speed dial might have to be uh, Callis Kenny Intellect's lawyers uh, our partners to, uh, to look after that one they're uh, supporting the pod and supporting our website at the moment so we might have to dial them up and see if they can help us out uh, Brent Gower this is interesting what's the best piece of memorabilia you
1: own I'm uh, going to defer to you first because we are in the V8 Sleuth uh, office at the moment and mm. there's plenty of cool stuff in here. Mm. What's What's your pick? Well,
0: not all the cool stuff's in here. Some of the cool stuff's hidden away as well in other places, but oh, best piece, I've got some cool race suits that I've collected over the journey, but I think the coolest thing I've got, I have Peter Brock's Mulbra. Are you allowed to say that? I'm not advertising it, I just say it for history's purpose so it's okay. Holden dealer team jacket from 1979, 1980. It has the 0.05 logo, 0.05 logo of the era um, attached to the sleeve. It's visible in photos of the era. Um, it was given by Peter to the head young head of his supporters club um, uh, in 1980, I think it was, because if you're going to be the head of the supporters club, you need to look the part, so Brock gave him the jacket. And,
1: um, I was about to say you were pretty young. In no, no, it wasn't me.
0: It wasn't me. <laughs> it I, I'm, have an, too well. no, no, I'm an 81 model, so I wasn't around then. But, uh, uh it was with that that owner for, for many, many years and uh, recently acquired that because I thought that was just so cool. And it's period, it's it's just it's it's Brock, it's HDT, it's something very, very cool. So, um, uh, yeah, there's some cool race suits hanging around here as well, and a few that are tucked away in, um, in bags and boxes. Uh, uh, if I've got to pick a race suit that's a bit of a personal favourite, and I, I actually had this on display and on loan to the National Motor Racing Museum a little while back when they had a Craig Lowndes exhibition. Uh, remember that the Vodafone 2012 Bathurst retro livery HDT lookalike car? I've got one of Craig's suits from that year's Bathurst, which, uh, you know, it didn't win the race, but I think it's probably really strongly remembered by people, what, 10 years ago this year, Um, probably more so even than the fact that Winkup and Dumbrell actually won the race. It's that 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 retro livery had such a connection to fans of Brock and the dealer team and... um and that's pretty cool. So yeah, that has gone to double Marlboro. Yeah, I have actually. Um, I've never smoked in my life, so it's clearly never affected me. So, <laughs> uh, what about you, Stefano? What do you got lying around? You got anything of interest? Oh, I don't think I'm going to follow uh, no, those no, sorts no. of
1: things in. So yeah, it, it's one of those ones. Like um, I've got a couple of little things that uh, either teams or drivers or whatever have sort of given over the years, which um, wouldn't sound that impressive if I listed it off. But uh, things no, no. that things that remind you of things or, or whatever else. Um, yeah, it's. That's a, a nice thing.
0: Cool. I like it. Uh, Craig Condo had another question, so I thought we'd fire this one in. How long is the current controlled tyre supply contract? If the issue of tyre overheating when behind another car is not solved by the introduction of Gen 3, is it time to open up the controlled tyre supply for tender? I did some homework. Uh, Dunlop's deal of five years was announced in November 2019, so they have a deal in place until the end of 2024. So there's not going to be any change anytime soon, and I don't think a change of tire brand is those two things aren't connected.
1: Yeah, I would say that um, you sort of get what you're willing to pay for. Like mm. it's a it's a just below three hundred dollar tire. Um, so if they wanted to to go really funky with it, they might be able to do that within Dunlop's capability, you would think, but it might require a different level of investment. But yeah, we'll see. How it uh, how it works with gen 3 three?
0: It's been a really long partnership. Dunlop's been the control tyre supplier since two thousand and two to supercars. Of course, control tyres came in in ninety nine, and it was a Bridgestone contract for the first three years. But it's been Dunlop ever since, with a couple of you know contracts along the way. But they've generally been a longer term, mm. four or five year type contract. They haven't been doing. You can't really do a two or a you know small era period one with. Something so important that needs all that lead time to create the product and to get it out here and to test it and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, they've been a really good, and, and I've got no commercial interest in this, but you know, it's pretty rare that a commercial partnership like that with a category or a, a sporting brand, you know, 20 years is a pretty solid run, pretty solid run.
1: And the important point to make is that they will open it to tender, they they tend they do to do it when that. it yeah.
0: is out every time, it's not like they just automatically roll it over, but the other question is who else is out there that can pony up the money uh, and the technical know-how to actually even apply for it or to, to try to take it on. But um, uh, we see sometimes fans asking can they take it back to open tyres and I think control tyres, the best thing. that. And the, the irony of it is, here's in a little point, for the fact we have a control tyre now where everyone's got the same, we still have so much tyre chat. More Can ever. you imagine the tyre chat if we had three brands <laughs> and six compounds? Huh. Oof. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Will Tatnell? don't know if he's related to Brooke, regular listener of the podcast and loving the work you guys do. Therefore, question will get asked. If you were running a team for the Bathurst One thousand past or present would who would you choose to drive your car whether it's drivers from the a t c c nascar w e c or formula One Now I don't normally put in hypothetical questions here, but I thought he's a listener he loves the work we do. We're nearly finished this episode it's the second last question so why not throw it in there
1: Are you stalling while you're trying to think of uh, no i've IT? already i've
0: already got I've already got my answer. Clear. Do you want me to like stretch mine out so you can think of yours or have you got yours?
1: Well, I'm not all that imaginative with these ones. I like to swim between the flags. So, and it's um, partly influenced by uh, the project we're doing at the moment. Uh, And and the way supercars is at the moment, but I think Shane van Gisbergen and Jim Richards, oh. like peak Jim Richards, oh. would be a pretty good combination.
0: Now that you say peak, when is peak Jim Richards? Are we talking JPS BMW Jim Richards? Are we talking Winfield Nissan Jim Richards? What's peak Jim Richards?
1: I would say pretty much any time from the mid '60s to the uh, <laughs> <laughs> to about 2020 yes. when he retired.
0: Yep, yep. No, that's a fair point. Rock and Lounge, the combo that never happened, how big would that have been? I mean, they were in the same team but in opposite cars. They were never put together in the same car. That would have been – for me, if I was running a team past or present and I could choose from history and I can do whatever I like, I would have
1: made that happen. I reckon you'd probably win the column inches battle as well. I reckon your press calls for your team might have (laughs) a
0: few more words uttered than mine. And the merchandise – rights would be pretty good to have as well, just quietly. Last question of our uh, Q&A podcast, Trent Urza, could you see supercars end up going down the DTM path and running GT3 cars in the
1: future? Uh, not really. I think we. there's a lot of discussion about this, whether it's like people have talked in the past about GT3 or GT4 or now Trans Am, but I do think we need our own formula in Australia where you're not beholden to... Getting getting your spare parts from overseas, um, and everything that comes with that. So GT3 in particular is like so such a different product to mm. what a supercar is, regardless of how many doors the supercars have. So no, I, I don't see it going down that path, and I don't think it should.
0: I think as our top category, we've done the whole follow the world thing before, and we've had our best days and our best times when we've done our own thing, and 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 other parts of the world have done the same when they've gone native to their market. They've they've done what they needed to do and, I mean, they were – take DTM as the example here. What else could they do because they had blown themselves out of the water with cost of that category of those cars and then the manufacturers all disappear so they didn't have this thing that could still carry on without manufacturers. Supercars has, you know, had the vision over time and it's been accelerated in the last five years, six years, whatever it is, of – No manufacturers actually being there, or in a much reduced sense, where you know we weaned ourselves off cigarette money in the mid '90s. We've been weaning ourselves off manufacturer money, so I think you know Supercars probably done a very good job of that in comparison to other categories where DTM just had to to carry on, had to do something, and GT3 was the the logical, easy thing. So I think you're right. I think we need something that's that's ours, that's native to us, that's Got to appeal to our audience here because at the end of the day if you know gt racing's around it's a thing uh it's popular and gets eyeballs when it's the 12 hour at Bathurst. but when it's not that i mean gt racing's always going to be focused and built on gentleman slash professional racing and customer racing so you do that and you you rip the guts out of an industry here of people who are paid to build things fix things repair things supply things you pretty much wipe most of them out if you go down this path because all you're doing is ringing Germany or the US or Europe to order another X amount, $100,000 worth of parts.
1: Or another million-dollar complete race car. Mm. Which...
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So to answer the question, Trent, uh, not any time soon. It's probably the simple version. Uh, Steph, have you enjoyed your return to the V8 Sleuth podcast? It almost feels like we're, we're stealing you back from our sister podcast. We'll, we'll let you go back there next week, but have you enjoyed yourself here?
1: Definitely, we've, uh, we've had a go. Hopefully the answers have been as good as the questions. Well,
0: we had a good good mix for, for this episode. So thanks, everyone, for, for sending them in. Uh, keep following us on the socials. We've got a contact page on our vhsloop.com.au website to, to keep on uh, rolling in through as well. So keep the, the notifications coming through and then the questions and the feedback and the thoughts. We always we get random thoughts from people too. They're not, not asking questions so much, but just making statements. Hey, we love hearing from you all through all the, the various ways that you can get in touch. Uh, the Motorsport Podcast Network is our banner that we put a whole pile of motorsport content underneath. Uh, Tuesday's Castrol Motorsport News Podcast with award-winning hosts, Andrew Van Lourde and Stephen Bartholomew I think that's now in your contract that I have to refer to it as award-winning Every time. I mean, award-winning within two months of being uh, established. So you've set a high bar there, boys. You better keep matching that for for next year. Uh, Repco Supercars Weekly every week, either Thursday or Friday, depending on the news of the week. And, of course, the V8 Sleuth Podcast Powered by Repco every Wednesday with plenty of good guests coming up in upcoming months on the road to the Repco Bathurst 1000. Thank you, Stefano, for sitting down with me. Thanks, everyone, for sending in the questions. Uh, Review, rate and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to our podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll chat to you next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil Tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil and find out.